Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that broods over the world of cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have new stories with David Campbell, including engineers develop inexpensive smart stop signs to improve rural road safety. In Sydney, they have a landmark called the Meccano Set. It's an ancient structure to hold signs at traffic lights at a major intersection. They had to replace it and they chose to replicate the old brutalist design from 1962. We find out why. And Alan Zervis has just witnessed a crash test. We find out what it was like and what is happening in the future. We also have two motoring minutes, one on the VW Touareg, the other the Jeep Wrangler, and some quirky news with Brian Smith. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you can go to our Facebook site, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. In a boost for the safety of tradespeople and commercial vehicle operators, the new Toyota High Ace van has achieved a five-star safety rating from Independent Vehicle Safety Authority, ANCAP. The all-electric Nissan LEAF also scored well with five stars, while the new Jeep Wrangler only managed a disappointing one-star safety rating. The new Mazda 3, the Toyota RAV4, the Volkswagen Touareg, Lexus UX and Range Rover Evoque have all achieved maximum five-star NCAP safety ratings in the latest round of independent vehicle testing. Jaguar Australia, a founding partner of the Australian Electric Vehicle Council, has signed an official agreement with Australia's biggest public electric vehicle charging networks, ChargeFox. The relationship makes Jaguar the first local manufacturer to formally support EV drivers through an agreement with the ultra-rapid electric vehicle charging network that is currently being rolled out nationally. The new partnership helps to ensure that Jaguar owners will have easy access to the rapidly developing multiple outlet vehicle charging network. By the end of the year, a national network of 22 ultrachargers will be operational, forming a network connecting Brisbane, Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne and Adelaide. As well, additional ultra-rapid charging stations are being planned for Western Australia and Tasmania. Tesla fans have been waiting for the Model 3 for some time. It looks as if the long wait is finally over. The American electric car brand has opened sales of its most affordable model to Australian customers, and buyers can now configure and order their Model 3s online. Tesla's Australian website says orders placed now will be delivered in August, but buyers who put down their $1,500 deposit more than three years ago will get first priority, which means that new customers will most likely have to wait a little longer. Two versions will be available initially. Prices start at $66,000 before on-road costs for the Standard Range Plus version and $85,000 for the Performance. Each compares favourably to key rivals. The entry price is on par with the new Hyundai Kona electric vehicle SUV and slightly more than a base BMW 3 Series and Mercedes-Benz C-Class. But the standard specifications 
Trump's rivals in terms of performance and technology. The standard Model 3 has a range of 460 kilometers and a top speed of 225 kilometers per hour, sprinting from rest to 100 in 5.6 seconds. The performance version has a range of 560 kilometers and can accelerate from 0 to 100 kilometers in just 3.4 seconds. The introduction of the Model 3 is timely as the Australian market prepares for a raft of electric cars due in the next 18 months. Audi and Mercedes-Benz will enter the market next year to compete with the Jaguar I-Pace and Tesla Model X SUVs. Volvo has significantly undercut the leading German luxury brands with the pricing of its new mid-size S60 and V60 sedan and wagon. Starting at just under $55,000 plus on-road costs, the entry-level S60 T5 is nearly $9,000 cheaper than the Mercedes-Benz C200 and almost $13,000 less than the entry-level BMW 3 Series. Only the entry-level Audi A4 gets close to the S60's base price. It's a similar story for the Volvo V60 wagon, which undercuts the cheapest Mercedes-Benz by nearly $10,000. The outgoing BMW by a bit more than $6,000. The pricing is much lower than Volvo Car Australia's managing director Nick Connor recently said it would be, but makes sense considering his desire for a no-discounting policy on the new car. On sale in August, the S60 and V60 return Volvo to the Australia passenger car market for the first time since it dropped the V40 and S90 in 2018. The V60 cross-country is expected to arrive in 2020. Engineers from the University of Texas are building and testing a new low-cost self-powered system that will detect vehicles, improve the visibility of stop signs and help prevent intersection deaths, particularly at rural locations. Rural roads account for 70% of the United States byways and the location of 54% of all fatalities, according to the U.S. Department of Transportation's Federal Highway Administration. Without access to a power supply, they are more likely than other roads to lack signals and active traffic signage. To improve driver safety, the University of Texas College of Engineering created a low-cost, self-powered intersection detection system to alert rural motorists about potential dangers. The next-generation stop sign uses a multi-pixel passive infrared sensor that detects a vehicle as it approaches the intersection. Once the vehicle is within the sensing range, a signal beacon triggers the stop sign's flashing system. The off-roadway system can be installed on urban or rural roads, completely independent of the utility power grid, because it is powered by small solar panels and functions in all weather conditions. Austria's University of Technology is developing an innovative camera system that recognises pedestrians' intentions to cross the road and automatically changes traffic signals to accommodate them, as part of a project that was commissioned by the city of Vienna. In Vienna, there are around 200 push-button signal pedestrian crossings that allow people to cross the road safely after a brief waiting time. But often pedestrians do not wait for the green phase, and cross the street when the lights are red, resulting in drivers having to stop even though nobody is there. The new innovative camera-based system recognises the intention of pedestrians to cross the road and halts the traffic automatically. When a pedestrian enters the zone, custom-designed deep learning algorithms analyse their motion path, determining within a second whether or not they intend to cross the road. The system then works with the city's existing traffic management equipment 
determining how soon the signal controller can activate the walk light based on the current traffic flow. Once the light is illuminated, it stays lit long enough for all people detected by the camera to safely get across. However, if the system sees that someone has approached the crossing but then left, it will cancel the walk light request, allowing traffic to flow uninterrupted. And that has been the news. Way back in the early 60s, out in a suburb of Sydney, they erected a large system to try and put up signposts and traffic signals. It was very elementary, solid in its way, and became known affectionately as the Meccano set. Well, it comes a time where that needed to be replaced and you could put a quite different system, a modern design to it. The community hated the idea. They had their affection for this Meccano set and so it has been replaced in a very similar manner. But don't let me try and describe it. Let's get an expert. I have on the line my good friend and long-term colleague and traffic engineer, Graham Patterson. Graham, lovely to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you, David. Why did the Road Authority go back and duplicate the old design, albeit in modern materials? Because the structure was ageing, you know, but I think bridges are designed for a lifespan in the order of 100 years, but signposting structures, they're they're not as long-lived. They can rust and wear and tear and fatigue with uh, movement over the years. So it it did, did become time to replace it. Initially, there were thoughts about just replacing with modern technology, you know, the mast arms at Cantleford Post, you see it, a lot of traffic lights with signs, but there's big spans out there. Um, so some public consultation was carried out in early 2015. A lot of letters were sent out and people were invited to send their comments in. There were, I believe, 220 comments came back in. And amazingly, uh, of those, uh, 201 said, keep the present structure, we really value it. 12 people said it should be removed and others were um a bit undecided and perhaps take the cheapest approach. So um, 201 out of 222 support keeping the, the structure as it was, which is quite amazing, the public support level for it. Uh, so it was decided to rebuild it in the same in the same appearance, the same sort of mechanical structure. It, it does have some traffic engineering advantages too. It means there's only four little posts out there. So if you are unfortunate enough to have a traffic accident, lose control of your vehicle, um, there's a much lower chance of hitting a big uh, post if there's only four major ones. There are there are still some smaller traffic light poles, but not um, not as many as, as if we had gone to present day type of structures with different ones for signposting and traffic lights. Um, another interesting thing about the structure is because it was designed by main roads for signposting, when the Department of Motor Transport uh, just came to put its traffic signal works in. It decided to run the the cables, wiring for the lights uh, across the structure rather than doing the traditional thing, which is digging under the road and putting in um, pipes to carry the cables. Uh, but the structure wasn't really designed to carry the cables. So the um, the maintenance technicians who looked after the traffic lights always cursed whenever they had to work on it because it was very difficult to get the cables across. Uh, they, they had to go through some small holes in steel work and um, whenever we told them a traffic light had to be at a new spot, they'd have to go out there with drills and cut new holes in the structure to put on their supporting brackets and equipment. And the um, structural engineers always had anyone drilling holes in there finely designed structures because it can weaken them. 
Mm, that's lovely. Talking about uh, structure and what have you, having just the four posts means there's less targets to hit, but gee, you want to protect them very strongly, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want to take one out because the whole lot would fall down. Yeah, surprisingly, though, in the 57 years, and I think there's currently 80,000 vehicles a day go through it, there hasn't been any major structural damage to the posts, those four posts. They are protected by uh, little ring concrete walls, so they're... Um, a bit like the New Jersey curve, you'll see um, separating traffic on motorways these days. So, so they're protected a bit, but I, I, I still wouldn't like to run into one, of course. Now, indeed, prevention is better than cure. Another interesting point about the Meccano set, uh, that was just an in-house name which the, um, the traffic light um, technicians used to use for it uh, when talking to each other. Its official name is Traffic Control Signal 164, but informally everyone called it the Meccano set. Now, the public didn't call it that for some time, but uh, when we started reporting traffic conditions from the traffic control centre to all of the radio stations and other people wanting um, to know where there were delays, uh, our, um, our traffic reporters in-house started saying, oh, it's at the Meccano set, and it quickly, quickly became a public term. The public uh, became well aware of it. Graham, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your information and insight. Thank you, David. Bye. And that's Graham Patterson, a long-term friend of the program and myself, a colleague of many years, who is a traffic engineer and worked for the government authority, the road authorities, and has a wonderful sense of history and its place and its interaction with the community. This is Overdrive across Australia. Jeep has had some problems of late with the Grand Cherokee the subject of many complaints to the ACCC and now the latest Wrangler bombs out with a one-star ANCAP safety rating. The key areas of concern are that it achieves scores of just 50% for adult occupant protection, 49% for vulnerable road user protection and only 32% for safety assist. ANCAP Chief Executive James Goodwin said the safety performance of the Wrangler is limited falling well shy of the expected standard in three of the four key areas of assessment. Chest protection was a concern for the driver and rear passenger in each of the frontal crash tests. A number of penalties were applied for structural deformation and potential leg injury hazards, and base variants lack autonomous emergency braking altogether. This is Overdrive across Australia. Back in 1993, the Australian New Car Assessment Program started rating cars, having crash test them for their safety. Star rating, 0 to 5 stars, it created a great controversy at the time as to whether it was a real reflection of the safety of the car or just in one particular or two tests. The reality is now that it is part and parcel of our culture, our understanding, our consideration of vehicles. But what is a test really like? Well, we're very fortunate that our roving correspondent, Alan Zervis, has been to one of those crash tests, and he joins us now to talk about it. Alan, was it spectacular? You can just call me Rover, David. <laughs> Rover. <laughs> It was spectacular. Funnily enough, it was a side impact test, so far less violent than I expected. Obviously, I've seen the front-on tests on video uh, and the three-quarter tests. So this one, they use a sled that's propelled towards the car at 50 kilometres an hour. And uh, it's got a, a honeycomb 
piece of apparatus in front of it that's meant to mimic an oncoming car crashes into the side of the car and then they go and uh, have a look at the dummies and see what uh, damage has been done etc it's still pretty spectacular isn't it when i went years ago and i was doing some videoing i didn't video the actual crash test because they had a million cameras around it i videoed the people watching the crash test and they were sitting there saying right yes yes fine and then when it happened the severity of it, the enormity of it, even though it's 64 kilometres an hour, was shocking to people. It just brings the reality, the intensity of a crash to people's mind. Was that your reflection? It was indeed. And, and of course, I've been in a, a reasonably serious car crash many years ago. Hmm. And when you're inside the car, obviously, it seems to take a very long time. Everything is uh, is, is amplified and stretched out. Hmm. From the outside, it seems to happen very quickly. Yeah, it is. And it brings to reality that an airbag goes off and is do- has, had, has done its job within milliseconds, whereas most people think it's a nice big balloon. Although a side impact, sometimes those airbags stay looking like they're inflated. Yeah, so the side curtain airbags uh, obviously were deployed, as was the thorax airbag in the seat. The airbag for the steering wheel and the uh, passenger side airbags did not deploy. So in most cars, that's the same now. Only the ones that are needed will actually deploy. Mm. And they stay like that um, so that if there's glass broken, it won't uh, come into the face of the person sitting in the seat. Because a front airbag flops in front of you. It expands, but then flops. Well, of course, all of the airbag, the use of the airbag is when it's deflating. So not when it's inflating but when it's deflating. So when your head hits the bag, uh, if it was still inflating, it would kill you. Yeah, because they come out at about 250 kilometres an hour, I think. Well, they're powered by solid rocket fuel. Oh, okay. Brings it home, doesn't it? It does. It does indeed, which is why uh, the Takata recall was so important, because the rocket fuel, uh, or whatever they used, was faulty and went uh, over time, became um, highly reactive. And it, uh, in, instead of blowing out in a controlled way, it just blew the device apart. And of course, the dev- you've got to hold that in a canister and uh, bits of that canister came out and thus became shrapnel. They do a lot of work in preparing the vehicle, don't they? It's not just, oh, beauty, drive it in here, put it on there. They, they're meticulous in trying to make sure it is consistent, fair, and comparable with other tests. Correct. Well, what they the point that they made, and, and I think this was the most important thing, was that the vehicles are chosen at random and they must be prepared as if they were going to be delivered to a customer. Hmm. So that's the first thing. The second thing is they then put their little diagrams all over it and bits of tape and so forth so that they can see what, if anything, moves or if there are undesirable consequences or whatever then of course they put the dummies inside and the dummies have what they termed very bad makeup (laughs) and and that's so that they can tell like we used to in metalwork class they'll put blue on something for example and then you can see when the airbag has deployed Mm. where that's hit the face of the uh of the of the dummy Mm. and those dummies by the way uh, are worth up to 1.4 million dollars oh it's not cheap to run one of these, is it? No. Uh, moreover, the test costs $490,000 per test, plus 
the cars and they require five cars. So it's not just one test. They're doing side impact. They're doing full front on. And then I think they do offset. Is that some of the tests they do? There's the test where it's uh, run straight into a wall, uh, then offset. Mm. Uh, so it's, uh, say, from the middle of the car over to one side on the passenger side. And they did say that they're going to be uh, doing that um, side passenger test from next year. Oh. Uh, and they do mix the tests up from time to time. They also uh, do a pole test. So not a pole dance, but a pole test. A far more catastrophic result, yes. That's where if you slid sideways into a pole, the energy is concentrated, uh, of the crash is concentrated on the pole, and that's a very, can occur quite regularly. And so they're trying to test for that particular feature because it's important that you test not just a driver, but passengers as well. For example, the Amarok doesn't have as much airbags, I don't think, for the uh, rear seat passengers on the side, does it? Correct. And one of the points that they made at the presentation yesterday was that one of the things they want to bring in in future is passengers hitting other passengers. Oh, okay. Something that we've not considered before. So, for example, uh, two people sitting in the front seat. So there's you and me, we're driving down the highway, the, we get hit from the side or from the front or whatever, we may not connect with the rest of the car, but we may connect with each other. Our heads might bang together and we could still kill each other. Yeah, it's an evolving world, isn't it? And it's a, a continuing world. Alan, that has been wonderfully informative. Thank you for your time. Our pleasure as always, David. And that's Alan Service, who's been to an ANCAP crash test and seen the complexity and the enormity and the development of this particular safety consideration. You're listening to Overdrive. The latest model Touareg is a major improvement and my first impressions were overwhelmingly favourable. Initially available as one model, the launch edition, the Touareg is set to shake up the dwindling yet very competitive prestige SUV market. Sharing a number of components and the same platform as the Audi Q7, Porsche Cayenne, Lamborghini Urus and the Bentley Bentayga, the Touareg is the most technically advanced Volkswagen model so far. It is absolutely packed with comfort, luxury and safety features. Clever buyers will benefit from a saving of anywhere between twenty to over $35,000 and get a vehicle equal to the more prestige brands and the smug self-satisfaction knowing that you could have an overseas holiday from the money you saved. You're listening to Overdrive. And here we are again to talk uh, some quirky news stories at the end of the program. Who better to do that than our good friend Brian Smith. G'day, Brian. G'day, David. Lead us on with a story of the unusual. Well, I love a public transport story. And this is an excellent story about the unusual things that can get you a free ride, a legitimate free ride on rail systems around the world or on public transport systems around the world. So this is rather than buying a ticket, this is something you can do to get a free ticket. And uh, it's quite fascinating. So um, uh, the, in the Netherlands, the, um, the, the government allowed train travellers to ride for free if they carried a book, but a particular book. It had to be the copy of Jans von Veloft, Jacket of Promise, by author Jaar Sieblink. And uh, it's to do with the, the kind of the national country's National Book Week and its annual National Literature Festival. And so if you carried that book... You could travel anywhere in the country with that book as a token. 
Oh, isn't that lovely, David? And in, in, in um, Virgin Trains in the UK had uh, some sort of uh, specials for British millennials. Um, they had produced a, a limited edition uh, run of annual rail cards, very cheaply, £30, that uh, allowed people between tw- the ages of 26 and 30 to travel for about a third of the usual price. And they people went crazy trying to get them. Um, so this was um, – Virgin actually responded – uh, suggesting that if the 26 to 30-year-olds just turned up with an avocado, the kind of uh, emblem of, uh, of <laughs> the millennial lifestyle, the smashed avocado, uh, they could get 30% off themselves. So that's a lovely idea. Any others? Yes, David, uh, in Indonesia, in Surabaya, they had a waste problem, plastic waste. They offered people, they would get a, a bus ticket if they turned up with 10 plastic cups or five bottles, like waste ones. And Russia is one of my favourites to promote the 2014 Winter Olympics. Uh, one of the metro stations uh, had a ticket machine that uh, if you did 30 squats in front of it, you'd get a single ticket for it. So uh, uh, lovely. Could have been worse. Could have been the downhill, given it was the Winter Olympics. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and finally, uh, in Berlin in 20, January 2018, uh, a limited edition line of sneakers uh, of Adidas was uh, launched with um, in conjunction with BVG, the transit authority there. And the shoes actually had a, a design that included a bit of the um, their iconic sort of hideous train seat cloth. But on the tongue of the sneaker was an annual pass for travel across the network. You had to pay about $215 for the shoes and you, you got a year's travel for nothing. Would the shoes last a year if you kept travelling? Or... I don't know, and I don't know if you had to hold them up to the ticket machine or not. Well, there's another fitness things. Would that help pay for the hamstring you you pulled when you <laughs> lifted it up to the to the thing? Now, yeah. it, it's, it's all very well to have or to try to encourage a certain sort of behaviour. But this, in most cases, I think, is just promotion. Although perhaps mm. the squats that you did in uh, Russia was a way of sort of saying that you know health health is rather good. And there's a relationship between uh, health and transit use, isn't there? People who travel by public transport tend to walk a lot more yeah. uh, than people who travel by other modes. And this is a great problem of ride-hailing services like Uber or Lyft mm. that they start to push towards mechanising the whole trip mm. so that you go door-to-door every time rather than get the benefit not only of health but of understanding your local community. Indeed. Brian, lovely to talk to you. Thank you once again and hopefully we'll catch up soon. Thank you, David. And that was Brian Smith and we were talking the unusual stories, the weird and wonderful, to do with motoring and transport. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Campbell, Rob Fraser, Alan Zervis, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their wit and wisdom in producing this program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify and you can look up our Facebook page called Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.